Welcome to the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, and I edit films and scripted TV shows in Hollywood. I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program to help aspiring editors start or advance their careers in post-production. I don't have any training in coaching or some fancy degree in psychology. I'm just a guy who is relentless in pursuing his goals and wants to help people do the same. But I didn't achieve happiness and success in my career alone. Throughout the years, I've come across some amazing people that have offered valuable advice and guidance. That's why I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program, to help people navigate the path to achieving their career goals. I've been in your shoes and gone through the same struggles. The challenges and fears on this journey are real. And I want to tell you, it is possible. We're still talking about the Queen's Gambit here on episode 16 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Yeah, I like the show that much. Uh, I'm still talking to some of the creatives involved with this fantastic series. Emmy-winning composer Carlos Rafael Rivera is on the show today. And he's here to talk about his experience uh, scoring the Queen's Gambit and how he collaborated with editor Michelle Tesoro ACE, who was on the previous episode of the Hollywood Editing Mentor podcast. We're also going to hear how he met writer-director Scott Frank. It's a really cool story of how uh, they paired up. But we're also going to get into some of the psychological uh, concepts and principles uh, that deal with uh, career advancement. Part of that is, you know, being humble and knowing your place uh, in, in a work environment, as well as embracing mistakes and failures and using these experiences to learn and overcome our fears. You know, Carlos was a guitar teacher uh, before he linked up with Scott Frank and then eventually won an Emmy for his work on Godless. But it's these principles that he learned from his upbringing that he has applied to his life and his career and therefore has allowed him to find great success in Hollywood. Tons of other great stuff we're going to talk about, and I'm just very excited to have Carlos Rafael Rivera on the show today. Just want to remind you guys that I am building a community here, and I want to invite you to be part of the Hollywood Editing Mentor community. It's free, and all you got to do is sign up at hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. You'll also find the link in the show notes, but this is a great place to learn about editing and the post-production industry in Hollywood. It's also great for networking and meeting and connecting with people. I host a lot of live virtual events where I'm there not only answering your questions, but also uh, giving you a chance to connect with other people working in in post-production around the world. So sign up today. It's free. You're also going to get some uh, cool freebies sent to your inbox. And I promise I won't bombard you with useless junk. So sign up today at hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. All right, guys. So my guest today is Emmy-winning composer Carlos Rafael Rivera, who's a protege of Randy Newman and whose work for film and television includes scoring one of Netflix's most viewed and acclaimed shows in history, The Queen's Gambit. Additionally, he has scored Netflix's Godless, directed by Scott Frank and produced by Steven Soderbergh, starring Jeff Daniels and Michelle Dockery, as well as Universal Pictures' A Walk Among the Tombstones, starring Liam Neeson. As a guitarist, Carlos has performed on stage as the opening act for The Who at the Hollywood Bowl, recorded studio sessions for Universal Records, and has songs featured on Netflix's Firefly Lane, ABC Scrubs, MTV, and VH1. Carlos is also an assistant professor and director of the Media Writing and Production Program at the Frost School of Music. Carlos and I are going to talk all things Queen's Gambit and music, of course, but we're also going to discuss the importance of effective communication and learning the language of film, dealing with imposter syndrome, and taming the fears that can come with working in film and scripted TV, the biggest lesson he learned from being replaced on a project, and the idea that what we are shouldn't define what we make. 
Oh man, this one's going to be jam-packed with some great information. And don't forget to share this episode with anyone that's looking for a mentor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. All right, guys, here we go with episode 16 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast with Emmy-winning composer Carlos Rafael Rivera. It's a real pleasure. Es un verdadero placer to have here El Maestro Carlos Rafael Rivera here on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. ¿Cómo estás, hermano? How are you? Yo gusto, man. Thank you for having me. And I love the Spanglish. This is so cool and very normal where I live in Miami. Of course, of course. And out here in California, same thing. You know, I don't forget about my, my Latinos. So it's uh, it's great that we can mix it up here. But, um, you know, just great to have you here on the show. Glad we make it make this happen. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you about The Queen's Gambit and your other work with uh, Scott Frank, Godless, for which you won an Emmy for. Congratulations. And I'll walk amongst the tombstones. We're going to get to that pretty soon. But first of all, I mean, I want to get to know you more, uh, kind of where you grew up, how you developed an interest in music and eventually became a composer. I mean, I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad is from Cuba. My mom's from Guatemala. They met there and I was like the third child they had. And then they moved to Miami when I was three. And then by six, we moved to Central America and I moved to Guatemala. When I was nine, I moved to Costa Rica. When I was 11, I moved to Panama. And then I back back to Costa Rica when I was like 13 and it was like 14 turning 15 when I moved to Miami. Um, so I grew up with different having to kind of show up first day of school in the what like second semester for going by American school system. It'd be like February 1st. I'd be the first kid in class. Everybody's clicks are set. Everyone knows everybody. And then they're like, hey, look at the new kid, you know, at some point with braces and glasses and super nerdy because I love video games. And it was just like, dude, rough. But I, but the truth is like going through those rough experiences of being the new person, having to acclimate to the culture um, several times, it was actually really edifying because I kind of started to understand it was like, you know, there's a flight or f fight or flight and I'm not much of a fighter, but, uh, but, uh, but I found a way to kind of just adjust and understand what, you know, the, the bully in this uh, in Guatemala, whatever that person's name was, is the same bully kind of person I'm meeting in Costa Rica is the same kind of bully person in Panama. That there are stereotypical kind of characters and personas that you meet as you're kind of growing up. And I was lucky to kind of see that it wasn't this one person, it's the kind of person they are. And I started looking through that and trying to select friends based on how that was. And what got, what got me to live through that in a way was being funny. Like I found a way to, like to be class clowny kind of kind of guy or whatever, um, and that sort of really got my sense of humor be, uh, because I really had to just adapt to the situation. So I eventually made friends with the tough kids. By the time I moved to Miami, I was like, you know, I was like, oh, that person. He's the one. I got to make friends with them right now. So I'll start sitting closer, getting making funny jokes, and and I had to learn that way how to kind of work within the system of high school and survive it. You know, I have no idea why I've gone this deep into the question, <laughs> but, but it's actually something that I that I felt I, I did find was very useful for me because I think in what we do in a way we kind of do run into new characters and new people and you kind of have to land in an ecosystem, especially as composers, you land in an ecosystem when it's already set and the click is already there and you are the new person because you're at the end of it. Your, your side of it, you tend to be there right pretty much from the beginning of post, like you're before post, then lands the composer after you've probably tamped stuff. And, or, and so now they have to adapt to that. And, and actually, man, it makes me want to ask a question. Like, 
This is the kind of thing that I want to know. <laughs> this is super cool, by the way, to get to talk to you about it. But when you're coming up with a temp, are there temp tracks that you feel very passionate about over what the director wants? And how is that line of communication influenced or affected by your involvement in that process? Yeah, there's certainly times where I prefer the temp music that I pick over the director's choices. Uh, but, you know, in the end, uh, I'm there to fulfill their vision. Uh, I might sometimes say, hey, you know, check this out. Uh, I tried this. Um, and they will say either, oh, cool, you know, I like your idea better. You know what? No, let's stick with mine. And that's fine. That's part of the, the collaborative process, right? But as the cut keeps evolving and I move on to working, say, with the producers, with the studio, and eventually I'm talking to a composer, I'm going to support the musical idea that has survived all those steps, all those cuts that we've done. So say I started with some temp music on my editor's cut and, you know, that song has now changed, you know, three, four, five times, whatever, uh, by the time we get to the composer. That's the song that I'm going to use as reference uh, when I speak to the composer and not the one that I'd say I might have probably liked better uh, that I used in my editor's cut. And then the composer is going to uh, go off and write... Uh, you know, a whole another piece of music, a new piece of music, um, based on what their showrunner and I communicate to him or her, uh, and those and that communication is all about uh, emotion. You know, what uh, feeling, what emotion do we want out of a scene with the use of music? And, and not only music, this also applies to sound, right? I mean, like you know, when we have our sound spotting sessions um, and say, you know, uh, I'm looking at a scene and I. I think it needs uh, people screaming, for example. But the sound designer might be like, well, I, I see it more as a panic surprise, right? Yeah. So in the end, it boils down to communication and supporting the showrunner's vision, at, at least in, in my experience in uh, editing scripted TV. Wow, you know, because I guess what, I, what I, I'm realizing or I have been realizing over the years is that there was sort of the idea when I was... so so. One thing just to get to the story of how I got to work with Scott, and it'll lead to this conversation, I think a little bit more, give it a bit of uh, canvas to talk upon. Um, it's sort of like, I moved to LA after when I was like going to get my master's degree in music composition. I moved to LA and I got signed, but I was signed by Universal Records to, a, I was in a rock band. Uh, the record never came out officially. It got released, but under the radar, it was really one of those, what I call VH1 behind the musics. No one saw because it never got made because it really nobody cared. So <laughs> we lived the dream for like three years. I mean, I was, you know, got a big advance. I was kind of all this stuff made a record, like really great experience. But after that, I kind of went back to music school and uh, at USC to finish my, um, my master's degree. And that was because of my teacher who, when I got signed, I asked him, listen, I got signed. What do I do? He's like, dude, you're young once go. And he was always super cool. And when I was, he, he's the one who met with me and said, have you thought of finishing your degree? I was like, nope. And he's like, well, you should do it. And he brought me back. And when I came back to that, it was like a series of events that happened because I was doing all kinds of odd jobs to make ends meet after the beautiful ride had happened that I, I decided to make money making music only. Like literally, I, and, I, and I learned how to become a Suzuki guitar teacher. I got you know certified and I started teaching little kids how to play guitar at the Pasadena Conservatory. And I started finding private students to make a living, just to kind of make ends meet as I was going to college and, um, or university. And then I, um, and Scott Frank was one of my guitar students, just randomly, you know? And then I showed up to the studio for the first day and I walked in and I saw like the poster for Minority Report and Out of Sight and and Little Man Tate 
And, uh, and, and I was like, what, what do you do? He goes, I, I write. I go, did you write that? And he goes, yeah, I wrote those. I was like, oh, my God. And I was like having that fandom thing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I already met some people, so I got to realize how to kind of be quieter, I guess, internalize it, you know. And I said, okay, let's take the guitars out and let's speak in lessons. I got home, you know, and I was honey, you won't believe I met the writer for Minority Report and and then the thing. And she's like, the, the dishes are over there so you can do them now. And you know <laughs> what I mean? Like the grounding thing that happens when you're, when you're married. And, and then so we ended up uh, going through lessons for years and he was a writer. So he wasn't a director yet. So once he started directing, um, his first movie was with James Newton Howard, the composer. And when I found out he was going to do it, I was like, okay, um, I, almost like. The, the best way I can describe my relationship with him at the time was like almost like um, vicarious, you know, like it was like you're going on a date with this really beautiful person. So uh, tell me all about it. How'd it go? I just want to hear your story, man. You know, it, so, it's totally I, I got lucky because I met and worked with him for so long as a guitar student. Um, and watching him go away for like a year and a half to make a movie. I was like prepping him to do that. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to get you ready to be able to talk to a composer. And I'm going to teach you how to kind of just say and talk music because a major scale is a major scale is this and, and the minor scale is so don't say major when you mean minor don't mean, you know, all these things that people complain to composers in their language complain about like you imagine sound editors because I'm getting back to the thing you're saying would complain about because you think surprise or they think surprise and you're thinking scream. But I never thought I would get the chance. Well, you know what I mean? Like, I never thought I'd be like, hey, I'll work with you one day. It was, I never could ask that. And I don't know if it's a Hispanic thing, man, to be honest. I don't know if it's a lot or, or like, you know, know your place and there's a system, you know, <laughs> does that make any sense to you? Oh, no, totally. Because that's, I think it is a culture thing, especially Latino thing. Because yeah. that's how I grew up. That's how I was brought up by my by, by parents, my grandparents. Yeah. Like to know your place and respect yeah. elders, and the, in yeah. this case, higher ups, people that basically know more than me. And that's, that's how I've learned is just I, through mentoring, it's like, how did you do it? You're, you're there and I'm here. And I want to get to where you are. So how about you tell me how you did it? And have that, and have that respect for that person, right? Yeah, and it becomes venerancia. Como se llama reverencia? Like you revere someone. Like it gets to the point. I think, especially because I do. I have said this a lot. Is that I grew up in Central America, and so I, I never thought I'd do this. Like I never thought this was something people did. I, you know, I do think people. I thought people were like on an island somewhere else, like a guild of musicians and composers and directors. They, they're all like another planet, literally, and and. How would I ever? And so I just loved it like a fan. I was like, oh, my God, who's John Williams or who's Jerry Goldsmith? And I was like, like deep fandom for this stuff or even rock artists like my my brother was in a fan club. And, and so he's four years older than me. And so I was four years older than him. So I had to be in a fan club of another band. He was into Iron Maiden and I was into Judas Priest because he was Iron Maiden. And but I I. You know, I mean, I was like a fan of things and it wasn't until I moved to the United States. And then when I moved to L.A. that, dude, I like I remember seeing like a famous person the first time and I just freaked out. Like, I just couldn't. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. And and that's the first thing that you actually have to break in order to to re, to, to kind of maybe get through meetings and get, you know, more opportunities like realize they're just people and they're everybody's trying to figure something out but it's way easier to say that than do that right because 
don't know about you. What was, it, what was your first experience like meeting someone famous, like in a professional relationship? You're like, oh my God, I'm sitting with blah, blah, blah. Am I asking the right question? Again? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, like I, you know, because I I, I, work, I grew up in Tijuana in Mexico uh, and then worked in Tijuana, San Diego for a long time. So I finally went to New York, New York City. Uh, and that's when I started then meeting celebrities, right? And working, not only meeting them, but working with them, right? I mean, I just kind of had to hold it in because inside it, you are a fan, right? You're a fan of pop culture. But it's this kind of uh, being humility or being humble, I guess, that I've always had uh, through my, my upbringing in that respect that I have for people, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that I was able to contain it, right? And, and <laughs> the level-headedness to, to, be, the, the, to be under pressure or whatever that I just can keep, I don't know, I, I got to say, keep cool. That's the thing. It's like you do have to... That, that's the next thing I think is sort of like, how do you go from like, okay, get over the fact that this, whatever, you just want to keep your gig. And, but also you want to get the, get your own sense of respect because you're doing something that feels as worthy as, or it's coming up to the level of what they're providing you as, as you want to rise to the occasion as much as you can, but you know, and that's all your internal stuff that you got to deal with and, you know, hopefully just work, work, work and show. But then when you, there is sometimes or many times where the pressure is palpable and it's palpable without being said, nobody says anything. It's just the energy and the phone call you get. And you've probably lived through because of the experience you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, I think that's the hardest stuff to navigate. And where the one thing I've learned about speaking about trying to circle this whole idea into is knowing my place is, that I know that like out of the zoom screen, I know that we have, I know it's like audio, but imagine like one tenth or 20th of your zoom screen. This is the concern the director has for, for music and, or whoever's in charge. Then this is like, you know, editing is probably this and sound and maybe it's like that, but music's down here, color, you know, special effects maybe, but there is a hole. And then I feel like when I'm here, it's like the eye of Sauron, when it looks at me, eh, you know, I have to be, be ready for it and and i think i think that's like one of the hardest things to understand is that knowing your place that and the reason why i'm putting this little image here of the bottom of the screen or whatever is because in my universe this whole bigger screen of where i'm working i feel like that's the big that's a big deal and this cue and this and they're not thinking that way and and i and learning that took me a little bit but it was one of the better things to learn that if they say they don't like it, you got to just change it. You got to make the change. There's no time to kind of stand up, but you understand. Look at this, look at this beautiful cushion or whatever. You can't, they don't care about what you're trying to talk about. If, if they're reacting and they don't have time because they have the other meeting after this one, um, just rewrite, shut up and write the cue. No, that's, that's what I know. The place I think has helped me uh, because I realized, okay, what you feel inside is really just your ego being addressed. And and, this is, and your ego is not what got hired. Your your work is what got, your craftsmanship is what got hired. So the truth is, fast forward to where we are now, and I realize that my job is not to educate the director. My job is not to educate the music editor. My job is to interpret that and somehow present what they want. I don't think it's it's important for me to tell you that, oh, you meant crescendo, right? Like, <laughs> first of all, it's insulting. Second of all, it's like, 
it, it's not my place. And that's where knowing your place in the system is about. We are a service industry. I My job has been, I saw the story of film, which is one of the great, it's a Peabody award-winning show that you, know, you can watch on, I don't know if it's on Hulu or whatever, or definitely watch it no matter what. And it's like, 14, 18 episodes. I don't know. It's, it's immense. And it's this massive undertaking that speaks the language of film, the story of cinema and international and global cinema at the same time as it's all coming about. And of course, it talks about Scorsese, but it talks about French directors, it talks about Asian directors. And, and, and it just goes through this whole thing. And your job is to learn as a composer, your job is to learn about lenses and focus and, you know, wide shots, you know, uh, close-ups, the coverage, what, you know, all these terms that are the language the makers of film use, you as well. You're, you're, you're very much aware of that. That lingo and I'm somewhat aware of it but I ha- in order for us to have an actual productive relationship I have to learn your language because I'm servicing you so that's that's the one thing I've I've learned over the years whereas when I was more of a fan before I had any real experience I thought and I'd heard so many stories like oh can you believe and amongst all the composers all those jokes are there can you believe the director asked for this you know yeah he goes, <laughs> Can you believe that? You know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, shut up and make clouds for this person or you'll get fired. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Actually, uh, all this has uh, reminds me of uh, some conversations that I've had with our good friend, Augie Rexach. Shout out to him. Um, But he wrote an article for the Hollywood Editing Mentor website called The Service-Centric Mindset, where he talks about how, as editors, we're there to serve someone else's vision, right? And in in the episode I I did with him, uh, we talked about uh, this idea that there's no wasted work. Uh, For me, certainly, I mean, I've, you know, dabbled in in music. I was a cameraman at some point. Uh, And so all these experiences that I've had uh, allows me to speak the language of film a little bit better. Um, and yeah, there's certainly no wasted work. I mean, it, it, all this stuff that I've learned in the past certainly helps me in my job today. And that's, again, like what I told you, is like that's what I base this mentorship program on is the mistakes that I've made, things that I've learned in the past. And I look at it, how I have learning experience. How do I make it better? What can I do better the next time? So speaking of mistakes, I, I mean, speaking of Augie as well, I met him on a, on a gig I got. Uh, where I got replaced at the end of it. And I was like one of the, probably one of the better things that happened to me because I never had the confidence. I've never been a very confident person about things. I'm like more like, let's get to the credits and and I'll be, then I'm feel safe, you know? And the experiences I've had have been very much like going to college, every single one, including Gambit and, and how that went down and, and the experience and the, the pressure to get things right. Like how do you make chess interesting musically? Come on, man. You know, there's like, <laughs> And um, but those are great challenges because you do learn from them. But I think the best lesson I I learned from from being replaced. Um, well, number one is Augie's really cool. He was always cool and always serviceable, and 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 really was efficient and effective. And 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 as things were kind of interesting and and, and changing, uh, he never really changed direction. So I love that. And um, but the the important side of of on my relationship was was really just. I didn't know who I was serving. I was I was sort of had an idea that I was serving the the directors of the show, but I hadn't paid attention to the network itself and their comments and their notes, and I wasn't aware I should. And and that's I think where where I was serving the wrong master, if that makes any sense, or serving the wrong person. And 
And I, I literally, it was an education for me because I was, I'm so used to working with the director. Like that's the person, that's the single voice. And Scott Frank is, is like a director, writer and producer. So you don't get clearer about the vision than this person, you know? And so it's very clear when Scott says, no, I don't think so. I'm like, absolutely no. You know? Um, so I think that's one of the that's one of the great lessons I had. And I think it's just really good to be humbled. I think it's really good to kind of go through an experience where you don't get the gig and you think you have it, but you don't. And it's never very clear. I wasn't aware of it for months that I didn't have the gig. I was like, hey, as a matter of fact, when when I found out the show had sort of gotten picked up, I remember I went and bought myself a Nintendo, not a Switch because I had already bought the Switch, but it was like a Nintendo controller. When I bought it, I brought it home. I was like, honey, the show got picked up. She's like, great, the dishes are still over there. So- <laughs> <laughs> They're still there. They're still waiting for you. You know, I think that kind of experience is, is what makes you grow. I, th- I think these wounds are very good for uh, who you are as a person. And, and, and because when you get back up, you are stronger. When you get back up, you are better. Like, it's almost like you're building this tank little by little that nothing can get through it. And all you want to do is just get better at your craft. And, and that has been something that over the last few years, I've been very clear on that. It's not what I thought it was when I was coming into it. It's not about like, you know, rainbows and clouds. I think we're all aiming for that. But if I'm a craftsman, I make tables and I make a table that that has to work with your house. And, and you know, the thing that can't be argued is that the table is well made. What can be argued is, is it fitting your house or not? And and I think that's really the more important thing of I've I've removed a lot of myself from the process when getting feedback is like, you know what? Yeah, that's not working. There's too, too ornate here. It's not ornate enough on this end. And it's not balanced enough for the way because we have this picture that they got for di- totally different reasons that it doesn't match. You know, I know I'm making a weird analogy here, but I, I hope it's some kind of sense. So it makes sense. I mean, it, it's like, you know, what I often tell people is, you know, don't let we, – we often were we, – we – cause ourselves probably more trouble and hard work our mind does right we that's usually that's what happened it's like you know what no you're it's just like you just got to put your ego aside and 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 do the work like you said hey man write the other cue make you know you know try this cut try to rearrange this scene whatever it is and just do it it has it's nothing personal don't take it personal. It's just, you know, this is part of the job. Yeah, the assembly is not going to put itself together for you. Yeah, yeah. You're with where you're like, oh, my God. You know, just uh, how do you even deal with, with the amount of sheer amount of volume of work to get something to tell the story the way, whether it's directed or not directed? Sometimes I'm sure you get shots. They're like, well, just figure it out and show me something. I can imagine. Right. Or yeah. Or even as as they tell you an idea and in, in, and in your head, you're like, man, this is not going to work, but I need to try it. I need to do the work. And then you end up with it did work. There's <laughs> <You know, laughs> not a revision I've done that has not made it better. Like there's exactly. never, I've never really gone back and rewritten something which I've rewritten a lot and important cues like the 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 cue that you know the director is sitting on going this is the one that makes or breaks the movie you gotta get it right you know and I've written what I thought was right and he's like nope I don't get it and I was like well why he's like I don't know just show me something else and then you're screwed you gotta go home and figure it out and write something else and there's no no direction and I think that 
I don't think it matters. I think I think it matters if they can be clear about what they don't want. I think it matters. It helps us as makers of things is like if we're told, you know, we don't like clarinets. That's awesome to know, you know, or I hate a kind of music or I hate a style of this or or. But but once it gets very specific into the temp, for example, and, and you know, the temp is doing that. But don't don't worry about it. Do your own thing. I've never really heard it translate into that. I heard it translate into do it, but not that, you know, even if, <laughs> I've never heard it be like, do your own thing. Do your own thing means change tempo. That means the rhythm of the scene to maybe that you, you created your craft to um, now is shot. Now the rhythm or, or what I'm really doing out is helping bring out the mistakes in the editing, you know, by, by retemping or retemp changing the tempo on something. So if temp comes in, it's really important to keep the tempo map. Does just really understand that the tempo map is the rhythm by which, you know, the scene is cut now. So if I'm going to redo the first thing I keep is the tempo map. Then I got to figure out what I'm going to write above. I'm going to change the harmony on it. I'm going to change, you know, or what is it about it that's working or, and, and hopefully the best note is what's not working in the temp, as opposed to don't worry about the temp, do your own thing. It's almost like, listen, we really kind of like the, the way this feels, but there's something a little too sad about it, you know, or we're not feeling, you know, the urgency that we need to feel from this music. That's helpful. That's and that's not musical conversation. It's it's words. It's English. And that is super. That's the only language we should speak. You know, we should try major scales or try, you know, you know, it doesn't matter. That doesn't you know? No, no. I mean, it just I mean, I mean, like I said, I recently had a, a music spying session and, and I think, I, you know, 95 percent of the conversations that we had, probably more, were not about, you know, musical reference. It, it was more about. Uh, just f- feelings, tones. Yes. Uh, I mean, I think at one point I said, yeah, you know, I, I took out one, I used the stems and took out one layer of a guitar. You know, that was, the, but everything else is more about, you know, what the characters are feeling, what we want emotions we're going to get from this scene. That, that's really the language that's being spoken. And then I guess I'm assuming as a composer, then you take those words and, all right, I see what you, what you're feeling here, what you want. Yeah, exactly. And to bring it back to the other thing, I don't think it, I don't think it's important that you know um, it's it's helpful, but I don't think it's important that you know that a uh, that a uh, like a um, like a new sound editor is interpreting your word into two or three different things. You should be able to say, I think the word you want to say. It, that's that's where you're at. That's what you can. Sh- they have to grab that and meet you. They they have to meet you. It's not. It, that's that's super important. I've and I really exercise that as a composer, at least, is that I'm not expecting them to. I mean, meet me halfway. No, 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 no. I have to f- get to you, and and then maybe if you get something out of this experience, that's great. But I'm not I, I'm not educating the person. It's not my job to go there. So I think screams are fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, what I'm at. I think that's ultimately really understanding. And that's within our post world, right? It's within our post team. You know, I remember calling Michelle um, for one, there's like a game that I had scored because there's a lot of games in the show. And there's like 20 something games that needed music, which is like, ah. And I remember one game had been seriously cut, you know, and I called her. I was like, please, Michelle, oh, is it possible? Is it possible? Nope hung up <laughs> but i like that and no, she she was but wasn't so brutal but she's brutal and i like that she's very she's like i'm not going to compromise the cut to to the music and it shouldn't honestly it, you know at most i think i've begged for or tom my music editor who's worked, worked with her a lot on this like we have the streaming thing you know our, our flow 
but I begged for two or three frames. Can you give me four frames, please, on this, just this little thing? Just, just <laughs> we land on, it's, we're so close, you know? That I think is worth fighting for very, very unoftenly, but it isn't the other way around. I'll tell you a mistake, well, number one, going back to Walk Among the Tombstones, which was my first uh, film that I worked on that was like a professional gig. Um, I remember getting uh, the opening sequence and the opening sequence, I started scoring it and, you know, they send me the first cut. Uh, the editor, her name was uh, Jill Savage. She's really cool. Very nice to me because she knew I was just starting out. Right. So she was very kind to me. And then um, I got the first thing through, you know, some sort of uh, back end situation. I'd never been on a spare, on a sparrow or any of that stuff. Mm. And, oh, yeah. and, like, and, and the first time you get the password and you log in, you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> I welled up the first time I was accessing daily. I was like, Oh my God, I could see, you know, I saw these yeah. different versions of Liam Neeson doing the same take, yeah. which other people would be terribly bored by. But I was like, I couldn't, I was getting popcorn. I was like, Oh my God, what's he going to do now? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the point is, I got this first assembly of uh, the opening sequence, and I started scoring it. And then I scored it, and I was like, man, if, they, if that door could close, just, you know what? And I edited the footage. I cut the movie and the video to match the music, and I sent it back, you know? And I was, like, so proud. I was like, oh, I think I made it better. And, oh, <laughs> and I get, like, I sent the link. <laughs> Like a like an email, a call from Scott, you know, like you know, twenty minutes later, he's like, "Carl, Carlos, did you cut the picture?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, isn't like, it yeah. better? It matches the music." And he goes, Carlos, you don't cut the picture. You work to the cut. You write to the cut. Wow. wow. The I was like, "Oh, okay." Oh, okay. All right. All right. No, I'll, I'll make, I'll make, um, I'll, I'll do it. And I, and I hung up and I started processing what had happened in my mind. I was like, Oh shit. I think I fucked up. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, I'm sorry about the cursing. I just cursed. I think I messed up. Like, you know? yeah. I think I messed up. And I was sitting there going, and, and as I'm going through that, I get another call. I go, hello. And it's Jill, the editor. Oh no. She got the picture. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. She said, so you write to the cut. I was like, you bet I write to the cut. I will, I will. And I hung up. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. I'm not answering my phone anymore. <laughs> I, I thought I was going to get fired. I, I Like that was missed. And that's like literally one of my first cues to picture was I, because I had no idea of the pecking order, like that part of it, like the, the po and, and that's how you'd learn. You, I, I, I was, Lucky. I can't tell you how lucky I was not to have been replaced then. And so, but that that's one of the many lessons you learn as you go, because, you know, you screw up on the job and you just, you know, next time you won't do that. And so now it's like, now when I call Michelle, it's like a sacred call. It's like, it's like, I feel like I have a hall pass that I can use maybe for the entire show. One or two of these, like going 10 frames, four frames, please, you know, because I understand, I respect the process and I honor what, what they're doing and it's not 
that's where the ego starts to kick in. It's like, shut up and work it, dude. Fix the table, man. Yeah, just yeah, exactly. No, just do it, man. I mean, like, you know, uh, you know, turn around, buckle down, and just, you know, figure it out. I mean, try it at least. I, that's the thing. It's always like, at least try it. And then you can definitely say if it doesn't work, or maybe you do find out it does, you know? I, I think this is that, that that's where ignorance is bliss is actually a truth, you know, because I there's so many things that I wasn't aware of that I was going to have to deal with as I was dealing with them. And, and I kind of just grew from the process and the same thing happened with Godless and the same thing happened with, the, with the Queen's Gambit. I think when you start looking at what the amount of, of hours of music you have to write for these kind of things, because they're, they're like seven hour shows, they're going to need three and a half to four hours of music, basically half of it scored. How, you know, that, it's so daunting to think about when you think about it holistically, to, I can't even imagine in your world, what what that feel? How do you how do you manage the mountain for the the path ahead? You know what I mean. How do you deal with that psychologically? I guess. Oh, I you know what I I, I just I break it down to mini mini goals, right? To me, it's like you know as as you're getting dailies, for example, like it's just one piece at a time, right? That's what I'm focused. I'm not thinking ahead, and I think this is a lot with a lot of aspects of my life. Is just focus on the task at hand and break it down to mini goals and mini achie- achievements. Because as you do achieve these things and, and 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 meet these goals, it's a great feeling, right? It's a motivator to then keep going. And so you're just going to, it's building blocks, building blocks. And then eventually you're like, oh, wait, I have a 60 minute episode, right? How did I, I, that, my, the, the, episode, <laughs> the episode I just finished, I was like, how did, how did I get here? Like, especially because it took like a year due to COVID, right? And I'm like, how did, how did I get here? Like this massive, you know, episode with a, you know, huge action scene, and everything. I don't remember how I did it, but I did it. And I think it's just like you just break it down. Don't let it get overwhelmed. Don't think about the future. Just focus on the present and build, 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 build. And you'll eventually get there and you'll have your full episode, right? For example. Yes. But that's, that's, that's my approach to things. Yeah. It's, always just, it's just kind of building blocks. That's great. No, that's, that's helpful to hear too, I think, because, because I think people can get, you know, you know let down or, or get the wind taken out of them when they start realizing how much to, there is to do. And it's like, I can't possibly do this. I think all of us do have that. To a certain degree, I should. I, I'm. I don't belong here. You know, I definitely have always felt that. Like I'm going to be found out, and and I'm not saying it to be like, oh, poor you. You know, you know, because I do know that the difference between feeling sorry for myself and trying to get empathy versus truly feeling sorry for myself because I don't think I'm worth it, and and um, the latter tends to be a lot of the time the case, and and I just I just know the difference. I think the difference now between what I feel internally making things versus what I felt when I started is that I know it's going to get done. That's the only difference. The only difference is that I know that there will be something in the inbox or on, you know, uploaded to Sparrow, whatever it is um, by the deadline. Cause that thing, I, that part has been religion to me, like meet the deadline you're delivering. They want it over deliver, not over, over deliver, deliver exactly on time. Because if you over-deliver, they start expecting more sooner. You don't want to change that part of it, you know. But but I do think that that's the only difference. I think internally what works going on, you know, it, it never goes away. And that's the thing I think it's important for people to know when they're starting that that those, whatever you want to call them, demons or whatever, they're always going to be there. And and it's just you have to learn how to just deal and, and respect them, you know, meaning for what they are, let them have their place. But it. It, that is not who you are. You're not defined by those things. I remember having a lot of anxiety when I was playing in the band. And I remember feeling 
very nervous, you know, when we started playing our first shows. And then later on, the sort of nervousness, it had sort of like a persona. I could feel that persona there. And then I just learned to just live with it there and just be and let go. And I think that's important. I think that's the sort of psychology part that, that we're talking about, that when you see all these people very, very confident about what they do, I, I, I've never, I really don't buy it most of the time, you know? <laughs> no. I, I, so I, I just think that they're just presenting something, but, but I think the more we sort of talk about it, it kind of feels more attainable for those of us who feel that way all the time. You know, we tend to kind of like, Oh, I'm not sure if it's any good. And, and you know, the difference, dude, know the difference between, I don't know about it. Can somebody hug me please? Versus I don't know about it. Cause I feel lost. And, and, and if you're the latter, then, then, you know, no, that's never going to go away. It, but it's just how to tame that, how to sort of deal with that in your life and move forward and deliver. Because all you have to do, you're hired to deliver, man. Whatever you got to do, I mean, you'll figure it out and, 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 and deliver. Like you said, I mean, you know, you brought up earlier talking about, you know, schedule that you keep. Uh, certainly me, like time management, taking care of my health, uh, having a routine every day. I mean, these are things that I do um, that will help me deliver. Yes. Right. I, I pay attention to these external things or that don't necessarily have to do with editing specifically, but all these other things that I can do to help me keep going Yeah. Uh, and taking care of my mental health, my physical health and the way I manage my time. I think it's important. Certainly a lot of things that I talk about, but, but yeah, I mean like, you know, I, I've talked to recently to another editor, Harry Ewan talking about feeling the pain, right? Being exposed to that pain, not being afraid of it, feeling it. You have to, I mean, we talked about, we're both marathon runners and, you know, we talked about the pain of running 26 miles. It, it is true pain, but you have to, once you feel it, once you start climbing one, five, 10, 15 miles, you, you start, you're like, wait a minute, I'm fine. I'm not going to die. Yeah. I'm still alive. I get that. Then you realize, wait a minute, I can't keep going. Yeah. That's huge, man. That's actually huge. I'm on the latter end of it. I started running like 10 years ago and... Um, I'm not, never did marathon stuff. I was getting to about 5k and I'd run three, you know, three times a week and 5k, 5k. And that's what I've been doing. And I went from like nine minutes to now I'm like 11 and a half minutes a mile (laughs) and and I'm 50 and I kind of look, at least I'm running, man. You know, at least I'm trying, you know, and, and, and the reason why I run is to finish running. It's not because I like running. I run run to get home. (laughs) And I'm like, I can't wait to get home. But 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 I think that process is actually out good for my mental health because I'm usually listening to podcasts. I listen to podcasts about writing writing. I listen to a thing called script notes and and uh Craig Mazin, I forgot the other guy's name, John August, I think. And um very cool podcasts and um they talk about that stuff. And because it's the stuff I don't do in the industry that I like, that I like to learn because you're dealing with the folks that are thinking that way most of the time. So, uh, but I listen to just about anything. I, I listened to another podcast called WTF with Mark Marin because I started listening to it 10 years ago when he had started and he was like a beautiful disaster, you know, of a person and working his way through his experiences and the wrongdoings he had done to some comedians earlier on. He had guests that are like, dude, you were horrible to me 10 years ago. He's like, really? He's like, you know, and he's like during that party, now he's become sort of a celebrity and, and, and done great work. And I've just always been inspired by, by this guy. And I just like, I like the lives of comedians because it seems like, it seems like the hardest choice out of all of the choices, you know? And that's the thing I would tell my wife, you know, it's like, honey, if the music thing doesn't work out, I can always fall back on comedy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) 
And, and the truth is, it's like, I think that's even harder than music, you know? Um, so I re- really do respect those people that make those choices and they're such unique creatures and, and just personalities behind the funny, you know, there's always some kind of something, you know, that's missing that, that propels that. And, and I'm always curious for those things. So anyways. I want to talk about Queen's Gambit. What an, an amazing show. Uh, congratulations. I mean, I look, I'll tell you right now, I that uh, that soundtrack, I play it before I start cutting my dailies. And I also play the main title when I go on my runs. Oh, dude, thank you. Man, it's great to go on a run with that track. <laughs> uh, yeah, talk to us about how that happened, uh, kind of the, the early stages of that project, how you, uh, conversations you had with Scott Frank, how you prep for it, and then, you know, how it evolved throughout the process. Yeah, man. Uh, so Scott Frank wrote to me an email like in August of, sorry, April of 2018. Uh, and the subject line was the Queen's Gambit. And what he said in the email is like, this looks like the next thing we may be doing for Netflix. That was it. And of course, I showed it to my wife. And then, of course, she showed me the dishes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just getting old now. So not true. She gets so bad, man. She's Cuban, 100% Cuban. I'm like, I'm like half Cuban, half Guatemalan. She's Cuban, man. So I don't want to mess with her too much. No, no. <laughs> um, but um, no, she's cool, man. We've been like at it like 30 years now. So I'm very, very. Um, but anyway, so I showed her the email. I was like, and then I downloaded the book and I read it within like a day or something. By the next day, I'd finished the book because it was like, it's not that long a read. It's a beautiful little novel. And I got really worried because the, the author, Walter Tevis, men- makes a lot of mentions of classical music in it. Like he talks about chess and he says, a couple of times I'll make a reference. He'll say like, it's like chamber music, you know, when he's describing the games. And I was like, Oh no, you know, because if classical music implies a very high sort of contrapuntal kind of writing, it means that you're going to be writing multiple lines at the same time that are in relationship to each other. And And then the fact that the game was old, it's like one of the oldest games there are. There's a classical sort of concept where it starts to feel right. And then there's another mention of Tevis in the novel at some point when the character gets left behind by these college people after hanging out one night. She wakes up the next day. In the show, it turned out to be like a pop song. She plays like pop music. But in the book, she listens to Vivaldi. And so... I was like, oh man, that's it. I'm like, I got to do classical. And and it's almost like you're trudging your feet along going, I'm going to have to do this because this is what this feels like is going to be right. And it was, I mean, I, I wrote the main title by, by the end of that year, you know, I had already started writing different ideas of themes, things that became like uh, uh, Beth's development, you know, da, 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 da. like training with Mr. Scheibel was like a melody I, I wrote and sent to And then um, all the training music, what ended up becoming training music, you know, or development music, you know, when she's training with Benny and or when she sees the ceiling, you know, towards the end, it's the same theme, but now goes a different direction because she's enlightened or, you know, she's truly developed. It's that kind of idea stuff. Um, But again, I'm telling you now looking back, but then back then it was just my reaction to her in the orphanage. That was sort of my music for the orphanage energy it changed as to its application then the main title uh turned out always to be there i i had it from the beginning thinking it was going to be a counterpuntal you know and very uh, because the game is a standstill kind of game people are sitting there looking across from each other so i knew i was gonna have to imbue it with like a lot of movement and not not percussive movement but like musical movement and that's the that's that's why I was terrified because it's such hard music to write is music that moves without your percussion pad. Um, and that 
that was sort of the big challenge. So anyways, that's a very long answer to it. But it started back then, and it was imbued by the fact that the novel really mentioned a lot of classical music in it. I also noticed that as the series progressed, uh, the score goes from being... Uh, fairly piano centric to including more orchestral layers. Yes. Uh, as we get into the later episodes. Well, you know, what happened was that Scott wanted a piano score only. He wanted a hundred percent piano score. He goes, I want the whole thing to be piano. And I was like, Oh crap. You know, like now we're, now we're and part of me was really happy. I was like, if we just do a piano score, there's no budget for the orchestra. You don't have to kind of do all this other side of prepping things. And at the same time for seven episodes, it's, it, it felt like, I don't know if it's going to work, but like, I, like, as we were saying before, you don't say it's not going to work. You say, let's go. And so I started thinking like, instead of a piano, you know, like where you'd put a mic, I'm looking down at like my keyboard here, right. But you can't hear but whatever. And then, um, Instead of having that idea of like, how do you mic a piano? I started thinking of what if we have a piano choir, meaning like like a choir usually has a, the singers like the sopranos are on the left. If you're facing them, you know, on the left, a higher register going to the lower register, right? The basses. And so I figured I'd have a piano choir, meaning the low notes on pianos would always be towards the right. The higher melody would be on the left and sort of you play with the stereo field differently than what you're expecting to hear with a piano. That was the only thing that sort of survived from all of that because it still got applied in the final. But once we, we also were assembling episode one for what seems like forever. But my experience was that we were on that because it was the first thing we were trying to get right. And the first cut was like an hour and a half or an hour and 50 minutes. It was like a super long cut for episode one. So I felt like I was writing piano music in the basement forever. And I had to write my way out of the basement. Because even though the main title had been approved and some ideas like the addiction music was kind of the final addiction music, you know, um, the montage music would turn out to be like her training music. There was like four or five things that kind of survived that initial rush. When I started scoring my first game, the color was right, but the notes were wrong and the content was wrong. And I was very happy about it when I sent it to him for the first time. I was like, I think this is right. I sent it to him and he's like, I don't think it's right. And I was like, oh man. And then Wiley Statement is a sound designer. Uh, brilliant. We call him Obi-Wan Kenobi. He would call me and he's like, Carl's just checking in to see if you need any, any help on anything, if there's any way I can support. And I was like... Oh, yeah. Well, what do you think? He goes, well, you know, I and he could you tell me all these things. And, just, and, and I always listened, you know, but I always feel like when people are important, people are telling me things. I have this thing in my mind that's going, I have to listen. I have to listen. I have to listen. And then I'm not sure if they're if I remember what they said. Like, it's this weird, surreal place that I go to. And I've always respected his opinion. And um, I think the truth is, like, no matter what they said, there was concern about me finding it. And I think there was concern from everybody, including my music editor. Tom was like, I don't know how we're going to get this right, because it's about, it's like, how do you get this right? What are you scoring in the chess game? And the, the one unorthodox thing that we have that I should say is that there's no temp track ever for anything in anything I've done with Scott. So the idea is, you know, Godless started really specifically that process. And then this one, there was no temp. So I was writing the temporary music. I was writing to the rhythm of, of Michelle's cuts. And she's a purist in that way. She really likes to kind of just get the cut right and then let the music kind of fall in. And I come in to fall in. The, the problem with this process that can be seen negatively is that uh, once I start, um, as the as they start to fine tune it, then I have to adapt my cue to it. So 
of the music I write survives. Most everything goes away. Sometimes it's a rewrite because they've cut it so much that the music now doesn't even make sense. There's no way to repair it in the music edit. You just have to rewrite it. And however, I actually would rather that process than the latter. But that also means that I'm involved way early. And and I was involved in this process for two years from the screen, getting to the screenplay. And then once assembly started, I started writing. And those first months were really, really rough because I couldn't find my way out. And, and I think it was, we were having a spotting session and where two or three cues had gone wrong. And we were in the fourth cue that was going wrong. And then there's literally a moment in one of the flashbacks where the guy's knocking on the door for the mom of Beth. And then she like opens and then there's a piano line that I did. And Scott's like, that is cool. I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I, when he pointed to that, I started realizing that where to kind of go with it. And that's how I started finding my way out of the whole thing. And I started to adapt that sort of, I understood what he was saying. And I really felt like I understood what he was saying for the first time. And, and that, and, and I was able to deliver. And I think I ultimately got lucky. Um, but because I had done so many attempts at trying to get this thing right. So it, it, this kind of thing, if there's anything that's good that comes out of the music, and if it survives on its own, it's because there is a true collaborative process where there is actual support in lieu of fear or in lieu of doubt, in lieu of the thing that will make you belittled and be gone you know as a composer he's like he just couldn't cut it he couldn't cut it could he that stuff is always there you know you feel it you, there's never a conversation you just know when they're like i'm not sure if this is going where we thought so so either you're buying time or you're really busting your ass to get the get the keep the job and i felt at some point towards that latter part that i was really just going oh my god i gotta write my way out of the basement and once I did, and this is, oh my God, it's taking forever to answer your question because you asked, what about the instrumentation? The concept I had was that once we started scoring some of the stuff for episode two and some of the assemblies, it piano wasn't fitting anymore. It, it, she had gone, she had been picked up. She was not an orphan anymore. She'd been adopted. She's going out into the world. You needed more color. And that sort of led to the idea of what if, episodically we go from piano which is cold and dry and representative of her environment that we meet her in to by the time she gets to the soviet union last episode piano is almost no longer there it's mostly just orchestral and why is that it's because in the orphanage when she plays the games on the ceiling the ceiling is always orchestral the thing she imagines as a child is full and complete and everything's there it's almost like when you're a kid you know and you have your dream you know one day i'm gonna be you know you're like as a kid <laughs> you know it's fully realized so the games on the ceiling are always fully orchestral and however her reality is piano mostly and the idea was to grow little by little from the thing she believed to the thing she is, and they match at the end. And that was that, but I, again, am telling you this. And during the process, I never sat down with Scott and told him that. I, I, I would tell Tom Kramer, the music editor, but I wouldn't tell even much Michelle or anything. I just, it's just a few conversations with Michelle. I remember saying, yeah, she's going, she got adopted episode two. She, she made a call about something working. And I was like, yeah, I'm just thinking and we're adding color as she's developing, but I wouldn't, want to kind of confess that because the truth is 
that talk doesn't make sense if it doesn't work. So if you're in this stage where you're having this imagination and ideation of it, and you start sharing it with the director, then then you present the music and the music sucks. What what was all this talk oh, for? Right? <laughs> oh, that's for wait. what? <laughs> exactly. And, and they don't care about that. I think it's a self-motivator. It's the internal conversation. And I'm lucky to be able to talk to you about it because he happened to approve all those cues. It's like, oh, I had this concept. Because that's not what this is about. Like, and, and That's the thing. It's always grounded in like reality. No, And that's maybe the other aspect of psychology is that you don't, the director doesn't care because of what you are and where you belong. They don't have the time to have these kind of deep conversations about it. They just want to say, is a cue working? Okay, on to color. I have a color meeting in half an hour or whatever it is. Carlos, I mean, I could definitely keep talking to you about Queen's Gambit on and on for a while. I want to be respectful of your time, though. And I, I want to ask you just two more questions. Uh, one, as a Latino, you're not just writing cumbias, bachatas. I mean, you clearly have you know other musical influences. You can do other styles of music, just like I can cut, you know, other shows that have non-Hispanic characters. How can we avoid getting boxed into these cultural stereotypes, uh, especially, you know, in, in a creative field? Question, because uh, first of all, I don't have an answer. Second of all, I do know that, that what I, what I am aspiring to do should be uh, genderless, uh, raceless, uh, ethnicless. I think if we're a- aiming for the same art and we all love the same things, what we are should not be defining what we make. Uh, I think what, if we happen to love, listen, a lot of Cuban music, you know, has been, um, in, in, in the, in like Norway and other places in Sweden, a lot of great Cuban musicians there from Norway who love the music and uh, kind of have kind of made careers out of these things and, and influenced back to the things that influenced them. I think the fact that I like American music being what I am and growing up where I did uh, is, is only helpful to the, maybe to the things that we provide our own personality. The truth is everyone's handwriting is different. My handwriting is mine, whether I write on a little piece of paper or on a big chalkboard, yours is yours. And it's defined by all those things that you figured out how to learn our music or the music I make, or your way of cutting or your way of seeing the world is yours. Nobody else's. You happen to be of a gender. You happen to be of a race or identify however you do. And I, I, the goal for me is to is to, for it not to matter. I think the goal is for it not to be something that is because, you know, I'm Cuban. They're like, you know, you know, I don't know. I, I, and that's why I feel like I don't have an answer because I feel a little bit, you know, I feel like ideally we shouldn't talk about it because it shouldn't matter. But in the meantime, let's help each other up to make it so we don't have to talk about it. You know, I think that's the only way I can present it in a way that feels comfortable because um, you know what I mean? I I think, I think uh, everyone has their own way. And, and I think there are plenty of opportunities being of something that you're not just doing the one thing, but I think whatever, not race dependent, not gender dependent, not, you know, I think there, there are plenty of opportunities to, I think the world and the way we have so much connection on the internet, the fact that we are a global community now um, should help, I think, help these opportunities become more prevalent, um, especially because I'm, I'm saying this, but you are living it, is that there is, we're in the golden age or whatever you want to call this age of media making. 
you know, whether you're making and cutting, you have so many more opportunities to cut for so many different uh, ways of whether it's YouTube streaming or, you know, small little Twitch videos or, or like television productions or, you know, national TV cable, you, you name it. I mean, there are so many more opportunities if you're looking for them. And, but I've never thought of like, you know, being Hispanic and, and how is, you know, I've just thought of, wow, I get to tell this story. I, I, I want to be in a position where, and, I, I got very lucky in many ways, man. I really did get lucky to be able to talk to you and 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 to meet the people I've met over the last few years uh, on this side. Previous to that, I was writing classical music and I was working on commissions and doing that. And and I felt the same way about it. It's like, I, you know, it would, no matter where you come from, if you have the passion for it, the love for it and the determination, things will happen, man. Awesome. You're a great example of that. And you're, you're doing some great work. Again, congratulations. As we would say here in Mexico, eres un chingón. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I know we're going to see some, a lot more cool stuff from you. Uh, thanks again, Carlos Rafael Rivera, for being here on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. What's, what's your favorite Latin dish? Viste uh, empanizado. My Ooh. wife makes the best viste empanizado. And... Imora yuca and uh, oh man, I just I can eat Cuban food all day, you know. And actually, look, man, I I lived in LA for like 13 years, so I miss a good taco, I miss a good burrito, I miss. I mean, I my passion for Mexican food grew when I moved there because in Miami it certainly wasn't much of it to go around. I was like, I don't know. Once I moved to LA, it was like I miss it so much. I miss good Mexican food now because I live in Miami. It's hard to find a good Mexican restaurant here. So anyway, but I'm down for a bistec empanizado any day, man. Oh, that sounds so good, man. Uh, well, maybe one day you can take me to your favorite bistec empanizado place and I can take you to my favorite taco joint. I know, man, if we go past the COVID thing, you know, and if we fly to Miami, you're welcome to come over. And my wife, if she's up for it, she's, she'll be up for it. She, she looks. Well, hey, if I come over for dinner, I'll make sure to do the dishes. Uh, you know, I, I got to make sure I, uh, I earn that bistec empanizado you know <laughs> uh, Carlos thanks again man I, I hope uh, uh, we can work together one day and I, I do wish you the best uh, uh, stay safe man and uh, gonna look out for your next uh, uh, project you're working on thanks bro I appreciate it very much thank you for the time man so so fun talking to Emmy winning composer Carlos Rafael Rivera appreciate just how down to earth and open he was I love not only hearing about his experience scoring the Queen's Gambit, but also how he's learned from his mistakes and how he's maintained his humility throughout his career. And thanks to him, now I'm really hungry. Hey, thanks again for listening to episode 16 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Don't forget to share this episode with anyone uh, you know that is interested in, say, wanting to be a composer or interested in scoring uh, or editing or just is a fan of the Queen's Gambit. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. It'll help grow this community and provide a helpful resource to those working in post-production around the world. Thanks Thanks again for listening. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, the creator of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program. Stay safe, stay positive.